Law and Liberty. This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit calcedon.edu to download this book or purchase a physical copy. Law and Liberty. Russus J. Rushdoony. Copyright 1984 and 2009. Alicito, California. Chapter 24. Custom and Morality. Customs are social mores govern us much more strongly than does morality. Most people are more afraid of offending their friends through bad taste than of offending God by sin. Girls who think nothing of disobeying God and their parents will actually weep over the thought of facing their friends with an old dress. There is an old story of a girl some few years back who, facing the possibility of a cold and working in a drafty office, was persuaded to go to work wearing some old-fashioned and heavy underwear. At the close of the day, she accepted a dinner engagement with a businessman who stopped by, went to his hotel room with him with no hesitancy, and then, suddenly remembering her underwear, fought like a tigress to prevent events from taking their expected course. It was not sin she dreaded, but being seen with old-fashioned underwear. This illustration points up an important social reality. In every age, there are many to whom appearance is more important than morality. But when an age is dominated and controlled by such a disposition, the result is rapid social decline. Morality requires faith and courage. It means making a stand and taking a course in terms of God's reality rather than man's reality. Morality in a sinful world places a man in tension with that world, at the very least, and potentially in direct opposition to it. The moral man is governed by God in his conscience, and as a result, he is more inclined to be independent of the group and self-reliant in relationship to society. Morality is productive of godly individualism and independence of spirit. Where custom rules, however, a contrary spirit prevails. People become group-directed, and they feel it imperative to be members of the pack. Their standards vary as the customs and fads of the group vary. Instead of being individualistic, they are collectivistic, anxious at all times to be with a particular group whose customs are their social code. Society, then, is governed by mob psychology, by the law of the pack, and the social order lacks stability or character. Today, customs rather than morality governs our world, and our politics is the politics of the pack. The accepted social image must be met, or a man however good his character and qualifications, has little chance for office. Abraham Lincoln receives almost worship from people today, but only because he has a century away. His high-pitched voice would get only ridicule and laughter from today's voters, and many of his personal mannerisms would rule him out of consideration for any office. We have become savagely intolerant of harmless mannerisms and physical conditions which are not approved by the pack, and at the same time, we regard as unimportant the essentials of morality. Men have been re-elected to public office repeatedly after clear-cut evidence of their immorality and misconduct of office. Sometimes their misconduct has even enhanced their popularity. This attitude is no less prevalent in the churches. Let us examine a specific and typical case. A very prominent, talented and handsome minister of a very important church was repeatedly guilty of dishonesty. Although it was well known that he said whatever pleased people, without regard for the truth or another man's reputation, no one thought ill of him for this, 
and his popularity only increased. He was, moreover, far from believing all that he preached and professed to believe, and this, too, was known, and yet he continued to flourish. Then, quite suddenly, his wife died and left him with three small children. He was totally helpless in caring for them. One of the wife's relatives who came to the funeral saw his plight and stayed with him. About six months later they were married, since the man obviously needed her and had come to love her, and maintaining two homes was a financial drain. In a very real sense, this marriage was one of the few commendable acts in this minister's life. But he lost his pastorate because of it, because the members were outraged that he did not wait a year before remarrying. Custom was to them more important than morality. Some members made it clear that they would have been indulgent of sexual irregularities during that year, but an open flouting of custom they held to be unforgivable. Wherever society places custom above morality, there a revolutionary situation exists. When custom is more important than morality, the first step toward revolution has been taken. The moral foundations of the social order have been denied, and a revolution in standards and behaviour has taken place. As a result, an important thrust of all subversive activity is the undermining of morality. Where morality has been undermined, law and religion have also been undermined, so that the major task of revolution has been accomplished. A revolution cannot readily succeed where the existing order has moral vitality, but a revolution is virtually accomplished where moral order has been destroyed. Moral order represents the establishment on earth of objective, ethical or moral truth. It is the conformity of earth and man to the will and word of God. Moral order establishes society in more than itself. It grounds society in truth and therefore makes possible the health and welfare of society as a whole and it provides the best possible framework for the liberty and development of man. Customs, mores or folkways are merely the conventions of a people. Sometimes they are helpful at other times they are not only a hindrance but a menace, especially when they govern a people. It is socially and personally advantageous for people to be concerned about their appearances. It makes for greater cleanliness, attractiveness and social courtesy. Such customs and conventions have their place, but it must be a subordinate one. When appearance becomes more important than morality, then social decadence prevails and society is in the midst of revolution. The greatest asset to any revolutionary group is a large body of people who are governed by conventions or customs. When such people, since appearance is all that matters, the country can be gutted of its historical position, constitutionalism and liberties, and there will be no objection as long as the form is retained. The same is true of their church relationships. They do not ask that their church be truly Christian, but only that it retain the form of being Christian. Their church can deny the faith every Sunday, teach their children the new morality, abandon its confession of faith, maintain through its missionary programs a revolutionary campaign, and these people will never leave. They will maintain a facade of being Christian by complaining indignantly about some of the most flagrant activities of their church and clergy. But they will never leave, and rightly so, because they belong there, the dead among the dead. These people who cling to the appearance rather than the reality, are the bread and butter of all revolutionary groups. They finance them, support them and defend them because they too are revolutionists. They are in revolt against moral order. 
and they substitute conventional order in its place. They are the first wave of every revolution. And even though the second wave first uses them and then destroys them, the conventional people are still part of the revolution. This means we cannot treat people who sit complacently in apostate churches and who ignore all subversion in the political order simply as blind people. They are themselves the first great wave of social revolution, of moral anarchy and national and religious decadence. They are more deadly, these conventional people, than the organised revolutionists because their position is more contagious and more destructive. There is, after all, a measure of honesty about an out-and-out revolutionist. He knows what he is, and he makes sure that you also are aware of it. He issues his manifestos and tells the world what he plans to do. But the conventional people have a deadlier revolution. They approach Christianity, and they bury it under their mass of conventions and forms. They are for the Bible, but it doesn't really mean what it says, and we mustn't go overboard in these things. They believe in Christ, but only in terms of a sensibly modern perspective, of course, and so on. They retain the form of Christianity and the Church, but totally deny the faith in actuality. They replace reality with their conventions. The conventional people treat all subversive movements the same way. They are always certain the communists, like Jesus, mean exactly what any sensible conventional person thinks. They no more take the communists on their terms than they take Jesus Christ on his terms. Whatever the communists said yesterday has no meaning today. They are bound to change and become like us. When I was a boy, Stalin, we were told, represented a conservative reaction against Trotsky. When I was in college, I was assured that, since Stalin was purging the old Bolsheviks, capitalism would soon return to the Soviet Union. And now we are treated to the same old chant, the communists are changing. The reason, of course, is this. The conventional people, having substituted appearance for reality, customs for moral order, cannot face reality in any direction. They cannot see God as God, nor Satan as Satan. They recognise neither good nor evil, only appearances. Nothing else is real for them. All people are exactly like themselves, or they are mentally sick. Conventional people are only blind in the sense that they are self-consciously, deliberately and passionately averse to facing reality. They are like the people of whom Isaiah spoke, who, hearing will not hear, and seeing will not see, lest their minds understand and their health be restored, Isaiah 6, 10 and 11. The destiny of such people is then to be blinded by God and led to destruction. Their nature and destiny is death, our nature and destiny in Jesus Christ is righteousness and life. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit 
reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.